Good morning. So please open in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at a letter that is unique in many ways. It was written in the mid to late 60s AD, and it's different from the other epistles that we've looked at in a number of ways. In the first place, uh, there's no greeting, and it's anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. Some speculate Paul, some say Apollos. We just don't know. Uh, In another thing, it's not addressed to a specific city or person, but to a people group, the Hebrews. The problem that it's talking about is specific to these Jewish believers, but it's very applicable to us as well. Because it's addressed to Jews, the author uses a lot of Old Testament quotes. If you just page through the book and look for all the italics in there, you'll see every page there's multiple quotes from the Old Testament. And then finally, the practical sections are interspersed because the problem that the book is addressing is so serious. Now, to tell you about the problem, I have to tell you about the situation that the book is being written to. The book of Hebrews is addressed to people who have come out of Judaism, a religion that is millenniums, literally millenniums old, and have trusted Christ for salvation, turning to a religious movement, as it were, that is only a few decades old at the most, and they're leaving a religion with a lot of things that you can see, a lot of things that you can touch. You know, you go to the temple, you could lean against the pillars, you know, on Solomon's portico, you can see the beautiful priestly garments you could probably smell the smoke of the burnt offerings maybe the incense of the priests inside and now they're going to what are they doing they're just gathering in houses and worshiping god now they're under great pressure to come back to judaism and apparently some of the people who previously were coming to the local assembly have already turned their backs on christ and left and the arguments of their enemies are very strong and rather persuasive You can imagine some Jewish priest extolling the glories of Judaism to one of the recent Christian converts pointing to the rich heritage that the Jews have with people like Abraham and Moses and the law that was given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai with the priesthood, the temple, and the sacrificial system. And then asking that believer why he has left all that that God ordained for a religion with no more heritage than a man executed as a criminal and with no more symbols than some bread and wine. <clears throat> you can imagine the force of such an argument. And you can imagine the pull from within the, the person to go back to something that they can see, something that they can touch. And you can imagine the effect that it might have on someone who is not very strong in the faith, or worse, the effect it might have on someone in whose heart Christ has been working but who is not yet truly saved. The letter then is an answer to these arguments. Through it, the author shows that while the Jewish heritage does involve people like Abraham and Moses, their greatness pales in comparison with the greatness of Christ. In addition, the covenant given by God to the Israelites at Mount Sinai and the entire Levitical system was only intended as a shadow of what was to come. It was meant to point to Christ. And by leaving Judaism, the believers are simply moving on from the shadow to the substance, from the promise to the reality. These believing Jews then need to hold firm in their faith in Christ and not drift back to Judaism. 
even though it is easier to believe in something that you can see and touch and that everyone else believes in, God has spoken through His Son and they need to trust Him no matter what everyone else is saying. So, in a brief overview, the book could really be divided into sections showing that Christ is superior to the patriarchs, the prophets, the angels, superior to Moses, to Abraham. Christ is superior to any earthly high priest. Christ serves in a greater sanctuary than the temple. Christ is the minister of a better covenant than the one given on Mount Sinai. Christ's sacrifice is greater than the Levitical sacrifices. And ultimately, Christ is the greatest example of faith. So, now let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. This is kind of like the author's thesis statement. He compares Judaism with Christ in just three verses. Let's read that. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. We'll pause there. Notice in that one verse, he's encompassed all the Old Testament. Spoken to the fathers by the prophets. The fathers. Well, that's from Adam all the way forwards. Then the prophets. It's everybody from Malachi backwards. So there's all the Old Testament. Now compare that with what follows. Let's go back to verse 2 now. God is in these last days spoken to us by His Son. Now here's where the titles start. He's His Son whom he has appointed heir of all things. Christ is the heir of all things. He's through whom also he made the worlds. Christ is the creator. Uh, Colossians, by him all things are created. Who, being the brightness of his glory. Glory is something very specific to God. Christ is God. The, the, literally the outshining of his glory. And the express image of person, the, the express image of his person, the very essence of God. He is God. And upholding all things, he's the maintainer uh, of all things. It's a constant, ongoing act, sustaining everything. When he had, uh, upholding all things by the word of his power, notice. When he had by himself purged our sins, he's the solitary, acceptable, and complete sacrifice. He sat down at the right hand of God. He's one who is sitting at God's right hand. But we've left the fathers and the prophets infinitely behind at this point. Now, the author could honestly, he could close the book right there. That's really all that you need. But praise God, there's more to it. The next thing that he shows is that Christ is greater than the angels. Now, the Jews are very proud of angels in their history. Uh, think of Lot back in Genesis. The angels came and got him out of Sodom and Gomorrah before the city was destroyed. Um, Elijah, you know, an angel sustained him when he was running from Jezebel. Daniel, the angel Gabriel came and showed him visions of what was to come. But Christ is greater than the angels. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. <clears throat> For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God never said any of this to the angels. But he did say this to Christ. Now, what's the true relationship of the angels 
to Jesus? Uh, look at chapter 1, verse 6. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. They're supposed to worship him. Now he shows that Christ is greater than Moses. Moses, remember, is one of the nation of Israel's greatest figures. He delivered them from being slaves in Egypt to being a great nation. <clears throat> now look at chapter 3, verse 3. He says, this one, that is Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Whereas Moses, I would say, let's put it this way. Christ uh, is the creator. Therefore, he has more glory than Moses. Now, the author pauses for one of his many warning sections. Remember, the people to whom this letter is addressed need to hold fast in their faith in Christ and not turn back to Judaism. And if they do turn back, that's pretty good evidence that they were never saved in the first place. Now, these warnings will serve two purposes. Those who are genuinely saved will be encouraged and strengthened in their faith in Christ. And those who are just professing Christians and not truly saved will realize that they do not have this staying power in themselves. It will challenge them, will be challenged to get right with God and to get saved. Now, this issue is very serious for these people. This isn't backbiting. This isn't even immorality in the church. But this is the difference between heaven and hell for some of these individuals. As a result, then, these passages contain some of the strongest language in the New Testament. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. That if in there says, the time will tell if their faith is genuine or if it's not. The truth is going to be in their actions. If they hold the beginning of their confidence steadfast to the end, then they were saved. And if they don't, then they were never saved in the first place. Uh, it's, that idea is shown in uh, just a few verses later. He is speaking, um, the author is speaking of those people who left Israel with Moses. And as you'll remember, all those who are 40 years and older died in the wilderness. They didn't make it into the promised land. Uh, look at verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not <clears throat> enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of disobedience? No, because of unbelief. So he switched the words there. He switched. First he said they uh, didn't enter in because they didn't obey. And then they didn't enter in because of unbelief. The words are switched because they're interchangeable. Because if I truly <coughs> believe something, then I'm going to do it. And if I don't do something, then it's proof that I never believed it in the first place. It's just like in James. James says, look, you go ahead and show me your faith without your works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. You can't show that you, you can't show your faith unless it's evidenced by how you live. James says, faith without works is dead. So now look at uh, chapter four, verse 11. The author challenges his readers here. He says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. 
they need to be diligent. This is their souls that we're talking about here. They can't just be complacent. They can't just say, well, you know, I'm saved. Uh, they need to be diligent to make to see that they truly are saved. They need to hold fast to their faith. And then he says, why do they need to be diligent? Because uh, verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and the joint and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is why they need to be concerned about their souls because the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. They can't fake God out. Now, the author is about to move on to show that Christ is the greatest high priest, but then he stops and continues to warn his readers of the terrible sin they are in danger of committing and that some of them already have committed. Look at chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, and listen to how close these people who have turned away, listen to how close they came, starting in verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. These people, they tasted. They became partakers. They tasted. They drunk the rain of the kindness and mercy of God. And then, having rejected God's best offers, having efforts, having rejected His Son and turned back to Judaism, there is nothing more that can be done for these people. Now, these are not believers. The author makes that very clear in the very next verse. Verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So now the author does move on to show that Christ is better than the Levitical system that they're leaving. First, he shows that Christ's priesthood is greater than Aaron's and his descendants. And he does this in a really cool way. He links two passages from Genesis and Psalms. You may or you may not remember a passage in Genesis where Abraham meets this guy named Melchizedek. And um, he's, you don't meet him before, and you don't hear about him afterwards, but this guy who, who is a priest, it says, of the Most High God, he blesses Abraham. And Abraham pays tithes to this guy. And as Hebrews says, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So evidently this guy is greater than Abraham. And uh, then the other passage that he links is a passage from Psalms. Another place you hear about Melchizedek says, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, speaking to the Messiah. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is a type of Christ. And therefore, Christ being a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, is greater than Abraham. And in addition to this, You know who hadn't been born yet? Aaron. Aaron was still, as Hebrew says, in the loins of Abraham. Abraham was acting for Aaron. And therefore, Christ is greater than Aaron. Now, Christ is a greater high priest than Aaron or any of his descendants could ever be. 
Now, remember that a high priest speaks to God on behalf of men. That's his function. Uh, It says earlier that every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's someone who intercedes for the sins of the people to God. So how is Christ superior as high priest to these high priests that that the Jews have left? Remember that this is written to these people who have left all this. They have left the high priest who is in the temple. But now the author is showing them that they have a greater high priest. Well, how is Christ superior? Firstly, his priesthood was confirmed by God with an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever. That never happened with the Levitical priests. Secondly, he doesn't die. All the priests died. Every single priest from Aaron forward Oh, they're gone. Uh, here's another way he's better. And this one, it's best just to read. Turn over to chapter 7 and look at verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Well, there, there's no comparison with an earthly high priest. Here's another way that he's better. He needed to offer only one sacrifice, as opposed to the priests who daily are there offering sacrifices. And then, finally, he's perfect. The earthly priests have weaknesses. Then the author shows that Christ serves in a better sanctuary. Well, the Jews, unfortunately, have Herod's temple. We did a little bit looking back on the history of the temple. You have Solomon's temple, which was destroyed by, I think it was the Babylonians. And then uh, the Jews came back from captivity and they built another one, which was nice. And then uh, Herod comes along and kind of revamps it. And so the temple that they have has been uh, built by a heathen. And at one point in his history, uh, there was a pig offered on the altar. So, honestly, the, all, the, the temple's good to a point, but it's got its problems. And it is just, as the author says, the temple is just a copy in shadow of the heavenly things. Now, Christ, he doesn't serve in that temple. He serves in heaven, in the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. There's another way Christ is better. Christ is the minister of a better covenant. Let's look at chapter 8, verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Well, what better promises? Well, think about it. The law that came to Moses on Mount Sinai, the bottom line is, do this and you will live. And there's, there's two points about that I was thinking. The first thing is, you will live. It doesn't say, you know, you're going to go to heaven, you're going to be a son of God if you keep this. It just says you're going to live. You'll just be doing what you should do. You'll be obeying the law. 
but it's do this and you will live. We can't even do this. So there, there's the promises that were given on Mount Sinai. Now, here's the promises that were given through the Lord Jesus. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. We don't have to do anything. Receive him and believe. That's all you have to do. And are we going to live? Yes, we're going to live, but it's not just that. We are sons of God. So there's the better promises than those that came for on Mount Sinai. Now, the author shows that Christ's sacrifice is better than the Levitical offerings, those offerings that are being offered daily in the temple. <clears throat> Look at chapter 10, <clears throat> verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Then skip down to verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. These sacrifices never did any good. The, and you could, you could imagine the, the Hebrew, uh, the Jew going there, he puts his hand on the top of the animal, the animal sacrificed. He, he, he knows that that didn't take care of his sins. The animal didn't pay for his sins. Now, these sacrifices, of course, they weren't bad. They were symbolic. They were looking forward. And what were they looking forward to? Look at chapter 9, uh, verse 13. <clears throat> For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, there's the Levitical offerings, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the one sacrifice that all the others were looking forward to. The one sacrifice that did take care of sins. And so the author kind of gives a little final comparison of Christ is high priest. With the whole earthly priesthood in chapter 10. <clears throat> look at verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So in the final comparison, in Judaism, you have a human, fallible priest, Offering sacrifices over and over that are completely ineffective in a temple that is simply a copy of the heavenly one. And in Christ, we have a God-chosen priest, the holy, harmless, and perfect Son of God, who, after offering one completely effective sacrifice, sat down at the right hand of God in heaven. So now, with all this truth to base their faith upon, the author encourages the believers in their faith by showing that all the Old Testament saints that the Jews point to is shining lights of Judaism, like Abraham and Moses, who we looked at. They live by faith in exactly the same manner as these believers now need to. Now, 
we're going to find three common factors in all the examples we look at. Number one, in these individuals' lives, there was a direct command from God. Number two, all the outward signs and signals say not to do what God says. But number three, their faith in God was justified. <clears throat> First example I want to look at is Noah. Chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and he became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So firstly, the command from God. Look back in Genesis. God says to Noah, make yourself an ark. So there you go. There's the direct word from God. Now, all the outward signs and signals saying not to do. <clears throat> well, in the first place, back then, it hadn't even rained yet. And this guy's out there building a boat, and I, I'm guessing he built it probably somewhere inland, taking him a 100 years to do it. Meanwhile, he's preaching and telling all, uh, all these people that uh, God's going to send a flood by water coming down from the sky. And you can imagine he's getting laughed at. He's getting ridiculed, you know, some crazy guy out there building a boat. Um, and he looks like he's out of his mind. But he was justified in his faith in God. God told him to build an ark. And you know what? The flood came. All those people who said, that's stupid. Well, they were proven wrong. And Noah and his family were the only survivors of the flood. Another example. Chapter 11, look at verse 17. <clears throat> By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. We looked at that one this morning. The command, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Now, what uh, you can imagine the voices saying, don't do this. You can imagine the voice screaming out from within himself. He loves his son. This is the son whom God said, I'm going to make a great nation out of him. And now I'm supposed to offer him as a sacrifice? But he had the word, of, he had the word from God as to what he was supposed to do. And what was the end result? Well, God stopped Abraham just before he offered his son. And he'd proven Abraham's faith along the way. And he did make a great nation out of Isaac, the nation of Israel. Again, faith in God was justified. Another example is Moses. Look at chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt, 
for he looked to the reward. Well, where's the command from God? I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, Moses, he was once a prince. He was the son of Pharaoh's daughter of one of the mightiest nations on earth at that time. And what's he going to do? He's going to go to a people that, you know, when you look at it, they really didn't want him in the first place. And there's all the voices saying, don't do it. It's easier just to stay where you are. Don't do what God says. But what was the end result? He exercised faith in God. And he miraculously led the Israelites to the promised land. Faith in God was justified. And then the ultimate example of faith is the Lord Jesus. Look at chapter 12, begin in verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, we can follow the three points here as well. The first is a direct command from God. Jesus, speaking of his death and resurrection, said, This command I have received from my Father. Now, what were the influences saying not to do it? Well, he's coming from being worshipped in heaven, down to earth, to the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, not just a cross, but the cross, where he took our sins. Imagine the physical pain. His body crying out, stop this. This isn't right. This hurts. He's being taunted by those for whom he's dying. And then he, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. But this command I have received from my father That was what he was supposed to do. And his faith in God was justified. Um, You can remember the Psalms, but thou didst not leave leave his soul in hell, nor didst thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. He could hold on to that one if nothing else. But he knew that's what God wanted him to do. And then uh, Philippians, think about the second half of the passage. God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven, of things on earth, and of things under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there his faith in God was justified. His faith in his Father. And he saved us. He is truly the ultimate example of faith, the author and finisher of faith. So now the author closes with more warnings and miscellaneous practical teaching. And he compares again the difference between Judaism and Christ. 
And we're just going to read this, uh, chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. And listen to the difference between the, between what they're leaving and what they're coming to. Verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. That's what they're leaving, but that's what they're coming to. And then he gives a final exhortation as to what these believers need to do. Chapter 13, look at verse 12. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. This is what they need to do. It's going to be leaving the establishment, the established religion. It's going to be going outside a place of apparent safety. It's going to be bearing reproach. But it will be going forth to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you. Lord, the one who is greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than everyone, Lord, the Son of God, the holy, beautiful, perfect Son of God. Lord, we worship you. Thank you, Lord, that you are our great high priest who is standing before God, who always lives to make intercession for us. Thank you for that, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would help each of us to live not by what we can see, but, Lord, by what you've said in your word, by faith in you, Lord, because you truly are worthy of all of our faith, Lord, and our love. We worship you this morning. And thank you for all that you've done in your name. Amen.